In the ever-changing history of Gettysburg, the ideas of Dan Sickles held sway for a time than those of George Meade. At neither period was one history more right or more wrong than the other. Now, what seems to me is that, that I don't think any historian will argue with you that, that we never know the exact, accurate, little, literal truth of the past. It's, it's not recoverable. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me you're taking a fairly strong relativist position here to say that neither Sickles' view nor Meade's view is right. They're just two different views competing. Well, I think what it comes down to is, I think I called it in the book, sort of natural truth. One of the disadvantages we have as historians, unlike, say, scientists or mathematicians, is in math, 2 plus 2 is always 4. And you can mm-hmm. prove it and irrevocably prove it, and, and anyone else is wrong. And in science, the combination of this atom and that atom and these two molecules leads to this. And there's, you know, you can test and test and test and prove that it's true. And in history, we just can't do that. There's no natural truth. It's always a matter of um, sort of subjective opinion. And one of the examples I use with folks up in this part of the world is, of course, they think there is a natural answer to this question, but it's who's better, the Red Sox or the Yankees? Uh. And we can argue forever, and there's no definitive truth. Uh, that you know, It's not like math. Two plus two isn't always four. Now, of course, up here, of course, the Red Sox are better. That's a natural truth. But, but, but it, it's a subjective argument in a way. It, it is, but let, let me push it further. Mm-hmm. If um, First of all, in the sciences, you look at the Heisenberg uncertainty principles. Uh, scientists say at one level they're no different from, from us as historians and that mm-hmm. they can never know the the whole truth sure. of, of their his, their scientific study. But I grew up in Detroit, and I will say as a argument who is better, the Red Sox or the Tigers, yep. as much as I love my Tigers, they stink. Um <laughs> Well, they're around 500 this season, maybe. Uh-huh. But, but it's not. Whereas you can argue Red Sox or Yankees, yeah. much as you could argue uh, some some points about you know, who got further at Gettysburg, Virginia, or North Carolina, right. which, which is a, I would argue trivial. Though, don't tell my North Carolina uh, <laughs> colleagues colleagues here uh, that that I would argue that doesn't make any difference. Right. But you can argue that either way, and I would say you're on firm ground to say we don't know, we can't know. Right. But Who's better, the Tigers or the Red Sox? You'd, you'd have to be really out in left field, so to speak, to say the Tigers are better than the Red Sox. The sure, Tigers aren't. At the moment, right. At the, at the moment. Yeah. And in the same way, historically, can't we say that some histories are really more accurate than others, even if oh, they're sure. not perfect? I mean, if, if, if I had to, to say what's closest to a natural truth, I would say the Sickles damn near lost the Battle of Gettysburg. Okay. But I'm sympathetic to those who... Who make you know because they make an argument that we can't completely refute that whole shock absorber thing that Sickles moving out even though it was against orders screwed up the shape of Longstreet's attack and caused Longstreet to um, have to spread out and weakened his attack and so forth and and that is true that that happened. However, it was General Meade's sending of pieces of two or three other different corps into the holes created in Sickles' line as Longstreet attacked, that is what stopped Longstreet eventually, Mm -hmm. the reserve artillery. So Sickles didn't win the battle by any stretch. He was in violation of, uh, you know, he he was going where he was told uh, not to go. He didn't tell his commanding officer where he was going and why, and and he violated a whole bunch of rules of of warfare. Um, And he put himself in a difficult position which stretched his line thinner and caused his artillery to to fire in a dispersed 
arrangement instead of, you know, across into the concentrated on the enemy. There's a whole bunch of these military blunders. But in the end, the, the second day sort of fell in favor of the Union Army, and, and almost all of the second day's fighting was as a result of Sickles' movement. So you can make the argument that because of Sickles, the Union won the battle. But that doesn't mean Sickles won the battle. <laughs> you know, sometimes a, a mistake can cause a, uh, things to happen differently. But Sickles spent his life saying, I won the battle, when in fact he was, you know, can now, by most military experts, is told, you know, what he did was, was foolish and, and um, he never should have done it, should have been court-martialed. But, uh, you know, the end result is they won. And it's sometimes difficult to fight with that sort of logic. In fact, there are even people in Virginia and other places who I've encountered who say that the Union didn't win the Battle of Gettysburg, that it was a draw. Oh, well. And it's it's hard to to argue with them in that what is the definition of victory? You know, is it more casualties than the other? Well, the Union suffered more casualties. And is it a percentage of the armies that had more ca- – you know, what's victory? And uh, short of Waterloo where the other side capitulates and, and is completely, you know, utterly destroyed – you, you can argue that uh, you could, I suppose, that Gettysburg was a draw. I think it was a decisive victory for the Union, but you know, unlike math, you can't say no. It definitely wasn't because it's it so often comes down to a matter of opinion. No, and certainly in, in interpretive cases like that, where you get to defining what is a victory or, or which strategy was better. Mm-hmm. But your your book, I think, it's fascinating for highlights that applies not just to the the obviously interpretive questions, who's a better general, for example, that we could argue indefinitely, mm-hmm. but something that ought to have a specific factual answer, like what time did Pickett's charge begin? Right. That is not that, – that seems like it ought to have a single answer. Well, it would today, but it's – and this is a great example of how it's so important to understand – what was going on in 1863 in the everyday life of a person mm-hmm. in order to understand what happened at the battle. And people to this day stand on the round top and say, exactly what time did the fighting start here? And I say, we just don't know, and we really can't. Because time in 1863 was a bit unimportant to some people, mm-hmm. particularly the soldiers who woke up when the bugle blew, went to lunch when the bugle blew, uh, did what they were told to do and went to bed. They had no need to have a watch or know what time it was. But more importantly, there were, for example, 28 different time zones in the country in 1863 based largely on train schedules. So if you owned, you know, the, let's just make one up, the Kentucky and Ohio train system, then you set your times. You know, this train's going to arrive at noon, and I say when noon is. It would, there wasn't a government entity that told everyone in the country it's noon. And even if there had been, there's no way to communicate that. Because even with telegraph wires, there's a delay from the time you send the telegraph to the time it's received. So without a telephone or radio, that you can't have this central clock in downtown Washington um, sending out it's noon and people in Atlanta immediately oh, set their clocks at noon. There's just no physical way to make everyone's watch work be the same time. And, and as you pointed out, it was the railroads that motivate that. I think it's late 1870s, early 80s when the government establishes the four time zones because Railroad scheduling and, and avoiding accidents. Right. But the figure of the conductor, uh, the the portly guy with the the big pocket watch. Yeah. <laughs> that watch is critical. His his time is the railroad's that's the time. That's matters. Yeah. And he carries it from town to town, and that's the time. Right. 
that's when so, it matters. But but as you say, that predates right. or postdates the Civil War. And, and and even if it were accurate at the time, most of the men in both armies were farmers who didn't give a dang what time it was. They got up when the sun came up. They worked all day, and they went to bed when it got dark. They have a pre-industrial concept of time. Right. So they didn't need to know it was 10 minutes past 6. They just knew it was morning or around noon um, and because the sun was high. And But there was no need for most of them. And then when you're in the Army, as I say um, – there's, you don't have to know what time it is. Someone's going to tell you where to be and what to do, and, and who cares what time it is. So, and in fact, in some cases, it's better not to know what time it is because you're not always thinking, well, dinner's at 5, and you know, your, your psyche's always focused on how much more time there is left. And it's better to just forget what time it is and, and live. So understanding that, people um, today can't fathom that because no. we're so focused on what time it is, and we're so bombarded with you know, our computers have the time, the television has the time, our watch has the time. Uh, you know, Time is constantly... Um, a, a total focus of our lives, or it just wasn't in those days for most people. So, and the other thing is, you know, not everybody wound their watch every morning, and mm-hmm. we didn't have, you know, batteries that lasted two years and, and so on. So there was yeah. some they mechanical. They synchronize their watches. Right. There was a mechanical thing. And it, mm-hmm. theoretically, the, the bugle was supposed to blow at 6 o'clock in the morning to wake the troops up. But if the general felt like they needed to get up early or, or sleep a little longer, he'd move that. Then a fellow wake up and say, oh, it must be 6, and set his watch and wind it for the day when, in fact, you know, the bugler was, was uh, you know, in the canteen or something an hour, if you know, a little late. So there's nothing, no sophisticated means of, of distributing an exact time. And, and as a result, everyone's watch said something different. And if they thought to, I mean, some guys might have looked at, the, remembered looking at their watch and it was about 10. And it felt like about an hour and a half when the cannons for Pickett's Charge started. So it must have been 1130. Well, I think we all know that sometimes... What we think is an hour and a half really is three or really is a half hour. You know, we, are, we, we don't have an internal exact clock. And that's where most of the history of, of what time Pickett's Charge started comes from. People thought they remembered looking at their watch, but there's nobody with a notepad and a pencil on a watch hearing a boom and then writing down the time and then seeing a movement and writing down the exact time. No one's, you know, everyone has other things to do. And on top of that, uh, as you point out, there'd be there's a conceptual question when people ask you what time did the fighting start in Little Round Top. Mm-hmm. Do you mean when the first random skirmisher's bullet passed overhead? Right. When the first casualty took place? When the first volley was fired? When the enemy came into sight? Right. There's no referee blowing the whistle and the kickoff starts. Exactly. And and the the Texans on the right hand side of the fighting on Little Round Top had a, were attacked much sooner. Uh, initially, That's right. and then the 20th Maine, whose opponents had to go over a mountain and came through the woods, so you don't see them as quickly. So there's that issue as well. Now, we did manage to figure out, just for those people, what time the fighting started for the 20th Maine. Mm-hmm. And it was about in the neighborhood of 7 o'clock at night today. Like if you were in this July standing on the mm-hmm. round top, you'd want to be there at 7. Because really? the... Alabamans, as they retreated over Big Round Top, um, said it got dark. You know, that was when, on our way down Big Round Top, leaving the, the fight with the 20th Maine, it got dark. And if you go through their accounts carefully and say they, how, about how long it would have taken them to, to retreat and climb the hill and stop at the top of the hill and so on, it took them about more or less two hours to get to that point. And and if you look, if you stand on the battlefield today, it's still it gets dark in Gettysburg on July 2nd at about 9:30 at night. So if you kind of wind backwards about how long it took for the events to take place, then the 20th Maine probably experienced its first gunshot around 7 o'clock at night. 
But that, on their watches, it was four in the afternoon. So. That, that's fascinating. The uh, idea of the time motion study to try mm-hmm. to unwind when things happened, anchored right. around some physical fact, we can still pinpoint like what time sunset is in July. Right. One other thing we have a great deal of difficulty with the Gettysburg is the, is the definition of the word we. <laughs> uh. And a lot of times the soldier will say, you know, we were attacked at four. Well, that could mean the whole army, or it could mean his brigade or his company or he and his buddy. Uh, and we is sort of interchangeably you know, used. And, and we were attacked at four could mean that's when the army began to be attacked. But we were attacked at seven could mean that's when I actually saw someone attacking us. And sometimes it's difficult because they they didn't always specify. Well, this is the the irretrievability of the past in the sense that we can never untangle all these conflicting accounts mm-hmm. is one of the things that keeps keeps us uh, keeps historians coming back exactly. to it. Yeah. On the other hand, many people have other reasons for visiting the past. Uh, and Batchelder wanted to make money. Sickles wanted to build his reputation. Um, Historians are often very comfortable with the ambiguity of the past. Mm -hmm. I would argue some historians uh, who who take a more strictly relativist position, arguing we can know nothing about the past, a sort of postmodern turn, Mm -hmm. it says we we can't know any of this. Indeed, it's all a construct. Um, To me, that seems to go off into realms of fantasy, but Mm -hmm. that's perhaps a narrow professional issue that we can leave to the side here. Uh, the general public and many Civil War enthusiasts are interested in the past for quite the opposite reason. They're, they're very uncomfortable with ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you encounter that? With oh, people? definitely. I mean, people, <laughs> it was actually kind of funny. The place where Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address yeah. was about four feet in the air because it was on a wooden stage, and it was over in uh, what is today and was then the Evergreen Cemetery, a local private town cemetery which happens by coincidence to be adjacent to the land that was used for the the Soldiers National Cemetery. And when they put the staging up to dedicate the Soldiers National Cemetery, which Lincoln spoke at, it was, oh, 40, 50 feet over into the Evergreen Cemetery. And it was actually for a reason. They built the stage over some of the gravestones and then had the people stand away in such a way that they wouldn't be on the gravestones in the Evergreen Cemetery. So the the place where he actually planted his two feet is not on on park property, but in fact on the other side of an iron fence in a, in a relatively private cemetery. But everybody who comes to Gettysburg wants to put their two feet in exactly that spot and say uh-huh. they were there. And it's difficult because you can't get to that spot without a pretty considerable hike, and, and they don't necessarily like a lot of visitors going into this private cemetery. So when we give tours, we used to point through the fence and say, right about where that stone is, is about where Lincoln spoke. Well, people are enormously disappointed Mm. by the fact that they want their two feet to be exactly where that spot is. And the same is true, for example, of a colonel by the name of Strong Vincent, who was actually Chamberlain's commanding officer and commanded the brigade that saved Little Round Top, was mortally wounded uh, during the fighting and was fairly beloved by a number of people in his unit and the fact that he was the highest ranking officer killed on the on that part of the hill and uh, made him quite a romantic figure and there are at least two spots uh, where soldiers carved or left a monument that said this is the spot where Colonel Vincent was mortally wounded now those spots are about 200 feet apart from one another and as I say in the book given the salient fact that he was only six feet tall at the most <laughs> he couldn't have been in <laughs> both places be in both. when he was killed <laughs> and it brought up this 
this statement I used to give to tourists to try to make a point, and it was, Gettysburg is a multiple-choice battlefield. If you don't like a particular version of events, just keep reading, because you'll find an opposite one shortly thereafter. And I think it was because there is such an enormous, thanks largely to John Batchelder and others, but the importance of the battle in their time, in the 1880s and 90s, caused every veteran who was there to write, and then many who weren't, <laughs> to write an account about their experience at Gettysburg. Because it was the one place like Woodstock in the 60s or you know a number of other things, maybe even eventually September 11th in New York. Everyone wants to say they were there and, and wants to tell the story of what happened to them. And unlike any other battle really of the Civil War, we have this mountain of information from which you can sort of make any argument or story that you want because you have so many conflicting accounts and differing versions and it kind of gives you, uh, as, a, as say, a novelist or a fairly romantic writer, all kinds of potential. And as a result, the battlefield has been a place of Ku Klux Klan meetings and civil rights marches. And um, this battlefield has the largest peace memorial in the country on it. And, you know, it has all of these um, um, contradictions. And I think it just because there's so much about the battle that you can use, you can make it do anything you want. Well, uh, use the you say in so many words, we, we create the history we need. Mm -hmm. we, we make out of Gettysburg what we want it to be for our own historical or emotional or political needs. Mm -hmm. And thus there are many Gettysburgs that uh, that are interpreted differently depending who's doing the interpretation. Right. Right. And probably the best, ex best example of that from the fighting on the round top is the death of Stephen Weed, a brigade commander, the general and uh, Lieutenant Hazlitt commanding all the artillery for the Union Army that was up there. And as the legend has it, um, one of the two was, um, they were speaking with one another, one of the two was shot, fell down, mortally wounded, and as the other bent over him to catch his last words or speak to him, they had been friendly before the war, um, he too was shot and fell dead over the body of his friend. And that's a very poignant story, the kind um, you would no doubt tell because it, it has such drama and emotion in it. And there are about six or eight accounts of people who were fighting in that general area that repeat this sad story of these two men being killed. And then very a long way off in a very obscure spot is this other account by a soldier who was in the battery that this uh, lieutenant was commanding, um, who has a totally different perspective I guess we can get back to after the music stops. So. Well, actually, unfortunately, the music is telling us we're out of time today. Okay. But I want to say first, uh, thanks for engineers. For some reason, we didn't have any breaks in today's show, so we yeah. had extra time, and I can't imagine a better chance, uh, a better week to do that than with you, Tom. I Great really time. enjoyed this, and I think uh, all of our listeners will want to get a copy of These Honored Dead, How the Story of Gettysburg Shaped American Memory. Find out about the Cops of Trees and the High Watermark and all these other famous places and how they didn't exist on the battlefield, but they have come to exist in our memories. They have, yeah. So, Tom, thanks again for being with us today, and thank you all for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.